0: You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about the history of science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on April 20th, 2022. Let's have a listen. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of Q&A about history of science and technology. I'm happy to try and talk about both things that I've been involved in myself and things I might have studied. I have to say I've been, I'm in the middle of a a kind of a difficult history project right now that I thought was gonna be a really easy history project. It's uh, soon going to be the 20th anniversary of my big book, A New Kind of Science, the publication of that book. On May 14th, uh, 2022 will be the 20th anniversary of the original publication of that book, and I thought it would be interesting to go and write a little bit about uh, almost the anecdotes associated with the making of that book. I thought this was going to be easy because I thought, hey, this was something I did myself starting about 30 years ago in 1991, um, and uh, it's turned out to be a lot harder than I thought, and it kind of reminds one of the following fact that, when one lives through events and does things, one is not forming the thoughts at that time of what the kind of arc of history that connects those events will be. And so there are things where I did this, I did this, I did this, but then if you look at it, zoomed out a bit, you can kind of see, well, that's what led to this or that happening. uh, But I hadn't really formed the thoughts that that's how things sort of were strung together back when I was just doing them, so to speak. So I've been trying to reconstruct, uh, for example, how it was that I went from, in 1991, the idea that I would write a small book that would be kind of an exposition and condensation of work that I'd done mostly in the 1980s, mostly towards answering the question sort of how does there come to be complexity in nature how did i go from that to writing the 1280 page book that is a new kind of science that really has a much bigger uh, kind of story than this original question about sort of the origins of complexity which i think it it manages to handily dispatch that question and then goes on to the much broader kinds of issues that uh, uh, eventually gave the book the title a new kind of science so in any case, I've been I've been trying to trace down all of those things, and a lot of that has also turned out to be uh, the um, uh, a lot of elaborate uh, history of technology that uh, sort of was very entangled with what made it possible to produce the new kind of science book. Um, in the end, things even to do with printing technology and the possibility of making very high-resolution images of of things like cellular automata with sort of where every pixel counts and so on and having that be crisp that required all kinds of printing technology issues that um, uh, i was also uh, uh, way too deeply involved in around uh, 2001 and 2002. anyway it's something i've been trying to write and it's also required going back and uh, have most of the uh, material uh, just to give some sense of sort of history on the ground um Uh, You know, I have kind of the final files that were used for producing the book. I even have a virtual machine that is the actual book production software as of 2002, um, all preserved and able to be run as a virtual machine, uh, some kind of Windows machine um, brought back to life with very cruddy looking UX, I have to say. Um, Then I have files and I have mostly the latest versions of all the files that were used to create the book and all the programs that we used to create the book. Earlier versions are on tapes and uh, those tapes still have. Um, and we've been uh, restoring some of those tapes. Uh, a little bit of a challenge to find a tape drive that will read eight millimeter videotape that was what was used as backup, uh, a backup medium. Um, and it's a little confusing and the tapes are not as well labeled as they should have been uh, back 30 years ago. But uh, we've been slowly restoring some of those tapes and able to see uh, files and there's just all kinds of remarkable things that I find. One of the things that's very striking to me, looking, for example, at email that I sent 30 years ago, I have that all archived back to 1989, actually. Um, I have all my sent and received email archived. Uh, OK, there's some footnotes to that, like uh, I was using a Next computer, which had a very beautiful attachments mechanism for email. But unfortunately, the archiver decided to get rid of the attachments because on the grounds that they were too big and bulky and so on. And so those attachments have to be hunted down separately. But um, the, uh, the thing that is sort of remarkable about reading email that one wrote 30 years ago is uh, you know, I, I I feel pretty, pretty satisfied that the things I wrote were quite sensible. Um, and uh uh, but every story that one is describing and, disc- and and being part of in those emails is pretty much the end of the story is now known, 30 years later. There are all kinds of interactions with people and interactions with organizations and so on and what one kind of knows the end of those stories. Um, and that's been quite interesting to me to try and sort of uh uh, understand the, the, the more of the arc of, of what's happened there. I think an awful lot of the emails were uh, to do with building our products and things and building well, from language and all that kind of thing. And it is very satisfying to see that there were, you know, particular bricks being put into the cathedral, so to speak, back in 1991. And yup, that brick is still there and it's still holding up some, some piece of, of what's been built on top of it. So that's, a, that's a, a nice thing to realize that one, one wasn't wasting one's time and, and just building a structure that, that uh, all got torn down in the intervening years. No, those are bricks that are part of a large structure that got built up. But in any case, that, that's um, uh, been, uh, what I was gonna say about other raw material. Um, there's uh, you know, the online, the, the, the archives of email and archives of files, backup tapes. Um, I also have uh, physical pieces of paper um, that I uh, uh, um, wrote things on and, and printouts and so on. Uh, at least from 1993 onward, um, those have not been scanned, and those are uh, and that that's a thing that I'm about to start looking through. Um, it's kind of interesting archaeological exercise because in order to kind of um, uh, define the, uh, I knew that I was making sort of archaeological layers. In order to make sure I had date markers in there, I would throw in things like the uh, the phone list from our company, or random pieces of uh, of, of material that were, were dated in one way or another. And so that's kind of a, a place where one gets to see sort of things of the time um, embedded in all kinds of notes and so on. Many of those notes are are almost timeless. That you know, whatever they might be printouts of pictures of Turing machines or something like this, um, and those would look well. They would look better today just because they're high resolution, um, but uh, not um, uh, not necessarily um, um, uh, anything else. Um, the uh, uh, so the thing that um, um, so t- trying to go through those things, it's. Um, Uh, I was going to say another thing that I've been finding is photographs. Um, And they're photographs that were both taken for the construction of the book itself. And there are lots that didn't make it into the final book. Um, There are lots of strange photographs of all kinds of things that were intended as examples of complexity in nature, things like this, didn't make the cut into the final book. Those are interesting to see. They're mostly black and white photographs Mostly what's in my archives is the contact sheets from the negatives, uh, you know, just printed directly as little one-inch square things or whatever, one-inch across things. Um, it is a little frustrating that whereas in modern times, when all sort of photography is, or, you know, practice is digital, um, and one can, you know, one has lots and lots of pictures and one can go find them, there are things that I really want to find from 1991 that I know there are pictures of. Um, I just can't find them. And uh, it's sort of because I didn't have an organized archiving scheme for photographs. I didn't take that many photographs. And when I did, they were just, you know, negatives and little little folders of of, uh, of, of little, you know, printed photographs, so to speak. Um, so anyway, I'm still searching for some of those things, hoping to to find them uh, for my making of NKS, and, uh, my, my essay about that. Um, let's see. Uh, questions here. Oh, there's a pretty technical one here from Clemenides about the history of dimensional regularization and zeta regularization. How are they related to renormalization? Okay, well, this let me. I'll, I'll try and address this a little bit. It's um, uh, one of the awkward things in physics is if we think an electron is a is a kind of a, a geometrical point, there are lots of things that one might compute about it that are infinite. It's of zero size, but that means that, for example, its electric potential, its one over r type um, uh, potential, is infinite right at the electron itself. And you might say, oh, well, that problem is going to go away when you do quantum mechanics and quantum electrodynamics and so on, but it doesn't go away. There are still infinities when you do uh, the integrals and things to compute, for example, the self-energy of an electron how much, what the uh, 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 um, energy associated with an electron, uh, basically um, having uh, electromagnetic interactions, emitting and reabsorbing virtual photons to itself. If the electron is of zero size, then those integrals diverge. Uh, Those integrals are usually given in momentum space. So you're doing an integral over all momenta of some particular quantity, and that integral um, has divergences in it. and those, but those divergences have the property that uh, they they only diverge in well in four-dimensional space they they diverge, but if you are in uh, let's see lower dimensional space they do not diverge, um, and so what you can do is say well imagine I was in four-dimensional space well no actually let me be in four minus epsilon dimensional space. And let me do the integrals in four minus epsilon dimensional space instead of four dimensional space, and then uh, then I can compute them, and they're finite, and I'll get some results which have uh, which are functions of epsilon. So they might have a term one over epsilon squared plus you know one over epsilon plus three plus something else. And then so the the when epsilon goes to zero, corresponding to exact four dimensional space those terms that are like one over epsilon squared terms and so on go to infinity. But if you've got several different things that you're looking at where they've all got a one over epsilon squared term, you can often, and this is sort of the trick of renormalization, you can often cancel the one over epsilon squared terms and just look at the finite pieces that get left over. And that gives you the actual values that are relevant for doing experiments and so on. So kind of the idea is let's just sort of modify the effective dimension of space, um, do the computations, which will then be finite, but depend on the deviation for the the dimension of space from four, cancel out those terms, which are now terms we can sort of just pick up and handle algebraically and look at what the differences are. Now, when I say that one's doing these things, assuming a different number of dimensions of space, it's a very weak version of doing that. It's basically just using the fact that we know the volume of a sphere in, um, in d-dimensional space and it's given by something that's proportional to to r to the d times some uh, product of gamma functions and things which in you know for a circle it's pi r squared for a sphere it's uh four thirds pi r cubed for a hypersphere it's um what is it it's four pi squared uh times um uh, r to the fourth something like that for a, for a four-dimensional hypersphere and so on and it keeps going um, uh, in different dimensions. But that formula can be analytically continued to an arbitrary D-dimensional sphere. And that's essentially what one's using in doing these calculations in particle physics and quantum electrodynamics and so on uh, with dimensional regularization. Now, I, I think the um uh, the play, first place where I know that dimensional regularization was used was a little report called Diagramma that was written by Tini Veltman and Gerhard at Hoft back in 1976, I would say, give or take. Um, It was a CERN report that um, was trying to describe how to do Feynman diagram calculations, and it was sort of a, a, I think that was the place where I certainly first saw dimensional regularization being used. Um, It became more important to have sort of streamlined Feynman diagram calculating techniques one was doing them for qcd for qed quantum electrodynamics, there had been particular things that were computed you know the anomalous magnetic moment of the electron the various other kinds of scattering processes and so on but those have pretty much been computed by the 1940s 1950s 1960s those the the main experimentally accessible versions of those have been computed with the exception of the anomalous magnetic moment of the electron, anomalous magnetic moment of the muon, which was a very high precision computation, which went on uh, uh, being computed higher and higher precision. Um, and that was sort of a specialized activity for a number of years, but kind of the general, how do you roughly compute Feynman diagrams? The main Feynman diagrams that people have been interested in quantum electrodynamics had been computed um, by the sixties and so on. Uh, but then quantum chromodynamics came along, the theory of quarks and gluons, and there's a whole raft of new Feynman diagrams to be computed. There were also Feynman diagrams to be computed in, the, in the, what's now called the standard model, used to be called the Weinberg-Salam model, um, the, the model in which there are W bosons and Z bosons, gauge bosons, in addition to the photon, there were computations to be done there. Um, and, uh, and, and there were also some toy field theories like 5-4 field theory, 5 cube field theory where people did some Feynman diagram computations. But so by the, um, by the late 70s, there was a need, mid to late 70s, there was a need for sort of more streamlined Feynman diagram computing techniques and dimensional regularization was the thing that came out of that. But the importance of dimensional regularization is more a physics point, is that people have been using things like explicit cutoffs where you say integrate the momenta up to some value of the momentum, Doing that uh, broke a relativistic invariance. And so caused one to have all kinds of fancy footwork associated with making sure that the results one got would be relativistically invariant. Dimensional regularization didn't have that problem. And so that was how that originated. Um, I myself used it quite a bit. I was quite an enthusiast of it um, in the, when was that? Uh, 1978-ish time timeframe. Um, actually, one of the things that I had figured out, which a student who was working with me um, subsequently wrote up, uh, but um, I had been interested in, okay, so we know about the volume of a, a whole sphere. Uh, how do we think about uh, kind of, um, uh, how do we think about some um, kind of angular dependence in D-dimensional space? And the uh, things called Gegenbauer polynomials which are generalizations of the spherical harmonics. Um, spherical harmonics are the things that give you, you know, those nice orbitals and so on in chemistry. They're the three-dimensional, well, in, in, in two dimensions, their sines and cosines, are the sort of orthogonal functions on, on intervals. Um, in in three dimensions, the analogous sort of orthogonal functions on the sphere are the spherical harmonics that give you orbitals in chemistry. The question is, what's the d-dimensional generalization of that? And the answer is Gegenbach polynomials and so it's possible to decompose a bunch of the kinds of uh, things that appear in Feynman diagrams in d dimensions into Gegenbauer polynomials, and there's a whole nice theory of that that I started working out, and a, a student who worked with me um, ended up, uh, this is back in probably 1979, 1980-ish timeframe, um, ended up uh, finishing and writing up, and I think that's become quite an industry in the in the years since, but. Um, uh, that's that's a little bit on on the theory of dimensional regularization it's it's uh i in recent times in our physics project we're interested in these hypergraphs that represent the low level structure of space and whose limit can correspond to sort of ordinary space in d dimensions where d is not necessarily determined to be certainly not three and not even an integer and so it's of interest to understand how things work in in space that isn't uh, integer dimensional, but that's actually quite complicated and much more difficult than the case of dimensional regularization, which is mostly these these you know volumes of spheres or sort of uh, uh, easy angular dependence in spheres that that shows up. Let's see. Uh, there's a question here from Aaron about when and how was the first compiler made? What language was it for? What language was it written in? Um, If I know that history correctly, uh, the first compilers were for Fortran and then COBOL, and they were written um, around 1958, I think. Uh, The Fortran, the name stood for formula translation. And what had been done previously is when you programmed the computer, you were using the machine code of the computer and you were telling the computer to, you know, uh, sort of open, you know, turn this gate this way, do this thing with this accumulator. You were really telling it step-by-step step in, ter- in its terms, you know, do things with this particular piece of the computer's hardware, um, and that was how you did a computation. Kind of the idea, and this was an idea I think IBM was much involved with, um, the um, the idea of formula translation. Where you would write down something that looked like a mathematical formula and it will be translated into that set of operations that say you know send data from this uh, from this accumulator to that register and do this operation on it and so on it was a way of translating something that looked like a formula into those machine code operations and that was kind of the origination of fortran now i assume that the fortran compiler was written in machine code um there were Uh, there was some, let's see, there was a thing called autocode, I think, at the time that was a similar kind of idea. Uh, There were a variety of kinds of approaches, I mean, um, uh, that came in around the the same time of kind of how would you translate some high-level description into machine code. The thing that is sort of shocking is that some of the operations like loops and so on and, and uh, conditionals, all those kinds of things really didn't change from then until now, from the very beginning, the dawn of kind of electronic computing in the 1950s, late 1950s to today, most programming languages still work in terms of loops and variables and, and arrays and so on, very much the same as those very first languages used. I, I think our own Wolfram language um, uh, system is is one of the very few exceptions. I mean, our objectives are, are much broader than sort of the pure programming objective. Um, but the uh, the notion that one can sort of think about computation not in terms of variables and loops and so on, and is a is uh, it, it's 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 been sort of bizarre this kind of accident of history that the very first computers had their very first compilers that worked that way, and it's been sort of um, translated ever ever since. Now, the first time when people um, started to try and make a more formal description of kind of the language that computers were programmed in, I think was Algol. um, And, uh, oh gosh, when was the first Algol specification? I think 1960, maybe, Algol 60, if I remember right. And so, Algol, the idea was that this would be a sort of precisely mathematically defined language um, that was going to be used to program computers. Um, And it made use of this thing called Bacchus-Naur form um, that had been invented around 1956, I think, um, that was this kind of recursive definition of a language that says, you know, a, a, a possible expression in the language can be an expression plus an expression, or it can be open paren, expression, closed paren, this kind of recursive description of a language um, that um, uh, could be given. And that was kind of the origination of, um, uh, of, of, of sort of what became the specification for ALGOL. Now, very curiously, right around the same time um, as, as Bacchus and now I'm making that up, right 1956, um, Noam Chomsky was inventing kind of generative grammars, um, that have been, I think, um, uh, somehow as a person called Zelig Harris, who was also involved in kind of the sort of notion of formalization of languages and formalization of description of languages. And I, I, have been very curious how these things landed both at the same year, so to speak, um, this sort of approach to making specifications of computer languages and approach to making a description of uh, human languages. And I I asked Noam Chomsky this question once. I didn't get a terribly useful answer. Um, I think, uh, and I actually recently asked somebody else who uh, gave me a little bit more of an answer to that question. Um, But uh, I'm not quite sure which came first or whether it was sort of a convergent evolution kind of thing. But in 1956, both of these things kind of landed um, now, people go back and say, actually, there were descriptions from much longer ago that looked like this. I mean, when the, the typical grammar book um, that and grammar books that existed since antiquity, there were Latin and Greek grammar books, uh, certainly Latin grammar books from Roman times. Um, the uh, but those grammar books tend to be set up in a little bit of a different way. Um, Uh, although they they definitely have sort of tables of what you can do, so to speak, Um, but not so much this kind of recursive description of a sentence as a this and a phrase as a that and and so on recursively going down. People have often said that uh, Panini, who was a grammarian of Sanskrit uh, from around, uh, well, a couple of thousand years ago now, um, uh, possibly longer than that, it's not not very easy to date, that uh, he had sort of a uh, they I, I don't know what the word knows it's a he but but uh, that person had um, uh, um, a description of, um, uh, um, uh, of of the grammar of Sanskrit in this sort of recursive form. Uh, I did look at the, at the, the actual um, originals of that recently. And it's pretty hard to understand obviously it's not written in i can't read sanskrit and it was originally written in sanskrit so i'm looking at a translation which already is difficult but it feels more like kind of aphorisms that just say things like you know a sentence has a verb in the middle they don't say things as abstract as that they're a little bit more example based so it's 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 pretty hard to tell sort of exactly how that history connects um but anyway algol uh, ALGOL 60, I think, um, developed um, uh, the sort of formal description. And I'm afraid, as has happened a few times in the history of, um, of computing, it was a big committee that, that invented this whole ALGOL specification. And uh, I'm sure that people were adding all these pieces about, yes, we should have, it, have this functionality and that functionality. And in the end, it wasn't really implemented completely. And I remember when I first used a computer in 1973 or so, um, there was supposedly a sort of Algol-like language. It was called Simpol, which was a simple version of Algol um, that was more or less completely supported on that computer. But Algol was like still way in the, in the stratosphere of something way too complicated to actually support. Um, so I think that's a little bit of the history of, of those things. Now, the concept of writing a compiler for a language in the language itself was something which was certainly somewhat understood, I would say, uh, well, certainly by the 70s. Um, and uh, the uh, the actual doing of that uh, probably, I wonder what the first compilers that were written in the language itself actually were, probably the compiler for C, which must have been 1976-ish timeframe, um, seven maybe. Uh, I suspect that was written in C, um, the original compiler for that as, as part of the, the C language was developed um, by um, uh, uh, Ken Thompson, Dennis Ritchie at Bell Labs. Um, I, I knew those people uh, back in the day. Um, the, uh, uh, that, um, uh, that was developed originally for uh, the Unix operating system which was being developed at Bell Labs for among other things, telephone switching applications. Um, I mean, Dennis Ritchie actually had had um, written his thesis, I think, about things called register machines, which are a simple model of computation. And it's kind of a little charming, and I've never really traced it through completely, the extent to which the very lovely minimal sort of syntax of C um, derives from the actual sort of formal description of register machines. I mean, C as a language was partly um, uh, sort of a derivative of BCPL, there that been a language called B also, and that was C was sort of the next in line in, in the things uh, derived from that. Let's see. Uh, well, Aaron is asking about the history of computer graphics standards and libraries, um, such as OpenGL and so on. Well, I know some of this, I'm not sure I know it uh, completely. Um, the, um, the first kind of, first computer graphics things, okay, back in the day oscilloscopes were basically the output for graphical kinds of things. And you would have you know the dot on a cathode ray tube and you would sort of make the dot dance around. And there were so-called storage scopes, which had phosphors that had very long uh, uh, delay uh, decay times, so you the spot would run around on the screen, and you could sort of draw something by having that spot uh, just by, by sort of keeping the the um, where the spot would be, and I think things like the PDP one um, had uh, those kinds of displays. That must have been um, 1961, two something like that. Had those kinds of displays and early, uh, well, both early um, uh, air defense computer was was based on those kinds of things, I think, and its display was based that way. I think some air traffic uh, kinds of things worked that way. Very first, you know, the space war computer game, I think worked that way. Um, So those were sort of very early computer graphics where you just, and a, a storage scope. Now, when I started using computers, uh, and making graphical things with computers, there were basically two technologies. Um, one was uh, uh, one was essentially storage scopes, uh, a little bit generalized by that time. Company Tektronix had made uh, sort of uh, uh, terminals that also had this kind of graphical character to them that was kind of like oscilloscopes, and and they would typically that you'd be able to print from that. Um, uh, print from the display by using essentially a thermal a, a photographic printing process you'd have the display and you'd press a button and there'd be this sort of uh, photographic like paper that came out that um, that had kind of an image of what was on that display that was technology number one was kind of the cathode ray tube oscilloscope type, type technology uh, technology number two was pen plotters, um, and I for example used this must have been 1976 Um, I used a a pen plotter um, that was, uh, HP had a very nice um, desktop uh, uh, calculator slash computer um, used a kind of a version of the basic programming language. um, And it had a pen plotter. And so a pen plotter, uh, you're moving sort of X and Y directions and moving the pen around. And I think it had, um, it even had several different pens so you could make um, plots with different colors and so on. So those were two of the early technologies uh, people used. Now, subsequently, this notion of a bitmap display, that is a display where there is a piece of memory that stores values in it and where there is a display that is kind of a a, a copy of what's in memory um, so that you can get this whole raster of data on on the display um, that's something that I think probably existed by the early 70s at the at the latest. I think the first time I saw one of those was probably at Xerox Park, the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, uh, probably around 1979, perhaps? Perhaps a little earlier than that? No, it must have been 1979, I think, um, uh, where there was both um, uh, both displays that were bitmap displays, and um, uh, that were um, um, oh, I, I should have explained. Yeah, I mean, in, in early let's see, I'm I'm now uh, the early computers like the uh, uh, the Atari and the Apple Apple II and things like that. Um, they had a display where you could uh, you could specify the the, um, the pixels on the screen, but they were pretty low resolution. The things at Xerox PARC, for example, were very high resolution, high enough resolution that you could form letters, uh, for example, by the by by just the dots in the letter being directly rendered to the screen. Before that, in cathode ray tubes. There were so-called character generators, which were separate kinds of things. Where, for example, we would physically have the electron beam go through a metal uh, kind of template, a metal um, uh, sort of um, uh, thing that would make kind of a silhouette of the beam to produce those letters, rather than having it be that the letters were formed by um, actually uh, constructed sort of pixel by pixel on the screen. That was kind of the new thing there. I remember actually um, back when I first visited Xerox Park. There was also a color laser printer, which was also a completely, um, uh, you know, a technology that didn't really reappear elsewhere for quite a while. Um, but then, in terms of of computer graphics, and I may have my dates slightly scrambled. Um, Evans and Sutherland was a company based in Utah that was um, a um, uh, an early computer graphics um, uh, company that um, invented quite a lot of uh, the kind of the methods for rendering 3D objects and so on. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm trying to remember all these pieces of history because I, I um, there are lots of lots of individual parts. There was a company called Triple uh, I Information International Incorporated based in Los Angeles that had been started, co-founded by a friend of mine named Ed Fredkin, um, and that was uh, founded in the early beginning of the 1960s. Did lots of different things, including sort of producing some very early computer graphics for uh for for example television productions i think they produced the um uh the the, the cbs spinning logo um uh, as a computer simulated thing um but uh you know there have been pieces like that um there's gosh there are there's so many different parts to all of this um but i think the uh uh the way that um uh, that sort of some of the modern uh, graphics standards emerged. Um, the, uh, I don't know completely the lineage of this, but somehow out of Evans and Sutherland came various companies, including Silicon Graphics, which was a company that made very beautiful purple computers and things. Um, that was back in the um, mid to late 1980s. And uh, SGI, Silicon Graphics, one of its specialties, was having it be the case that you could take a 3D geometry and, um, uh, and have it rendered on the computer and spin it around and do all those kinds of cool things. And it had special purpose circuitry that allowed you to do those kinds of things. And I think gradually that sort of special purpose circuitry methodology gave way to uh, these libraries like GL. I, I'm not sure, there were a couple of companies, there was one called Ardent and one called Stella which were sort of mini supercomputer-ish companies that came into existence um, right around the time Mathematica was first released in 1988. Those companies were very much, um, those two companies were very much duking it out in the kind of small graphics-oriented supercomputer-ish type machines. Uh, Strangely, they were eventually merged into a a merged company called Stardent that was Stellar and Ardent put together. But um, I think, Some of these graphics standards um, were developed by those guys as well. Um, And uh, uh, it sort of gradually went from, oh, you need all the special purpose hardware um, as has happened throughout the history of computing to well, actually with slightly better algorithms and so on and faster general computers, you can just use generic CPUs to do all the computations. One of the things that's confusing is that back in the, well, the eighties, for example, um, people were producing All the time, we're producing these kind of special purpose coprocessors where it's like you've got your CPU, but then you also need the FPU, that's the floating point unit. Or you also need the special um, arbitrary precision arithmetic floating point unit. Or you need the special uh, thing that does this or that kind of operation. And the, the typical experience was that by the time you really got those things up and running, CPUs because of the greater economic pressure on just make generic computing faster had gotten to the point where with, with a bit of clever algorithm work, you could sort of outperform the special purpose devices with the general purpose ones. And so for many of those things that, you know, for a while we were supporting a variety of kind of special purpose coprocessor processor devices um, in, in early versions of Mathematica and so on. And then eventually we got kind of cynical about it Because it's like every time we go to all the effort to do this, a year later, oh, there's just a library that's a pure software library that does the same kind of thing. And and there wasn't even any reason to go to all the work to support all the drivers and things like that. I kind of suspected the same thing would happen with GPUs, um, but it hasn't, and it probably won't at this point that sort of everything that was a GPU functionality would kind of fall back into what a CPU could do and what compilers could handle uh, generating code for. But that isn't what's actually happened. And I think the modern GPUs, which are much more vectorizing-oriented things than they are specifically the kind of graphics processing uh, uh, world, but but, um, they were used for that. And that's kind of, um, again, sort of, things are hardware Well, it's, it's more complicated because there are libraries that make use of GPUs and so on, that make use of special hardware, but their interface is a pure software interface. I should say that sort of what enabled computer graphics um, uh, really was the developments of, of numerical linear algebra, which was something that really happened in the 1960s and so on. People had been thinking, how do you find the inverse of a matrix? Well, you know, people knew how to do it by hand, it started to be relevant to know how to do it on computers by the beginning of the 1960s, and there was sort of slow development of, oh, there are these different techniques, which were crazy if you were going to do them by hand, but were really good if you were doing them systematically on a computer, various kinds of decomposition of matrices that made it easier to invert them, those kinds of things. And and sort of it became clear that, for example, the obvious way to multiply two matrices together, which takes, uh, what is it, order n cubed time, to, to work out the, the product of the matrices, um, you can, uh, there's a lot of sort of repeated operations that get done there, and you can gradually speed that up. Um, that, that isn't, and, and gradually, there are sort of different algorithmic techniques. Some of those algorithmic techniques end up being a bit infeasible for even matrices that are thousands of uh, rows and columns and so on, or even uh, up to millions of rows and columns. They're theoretically interesting, but not yet in practice interesting. But the development of numerical linear algebra, which got more and more standardized and more and more kind of burnt into at least uh, very low level libraries, um, was part of what enabled the uh, the possibility of, of computer graphics, and particularly 3D rendered graphics and so on. I mean, back when, when we were first developing uh, mathematical from language, well, okay. So we had in uh, SMP, the system that I developed from 1979 to about 1982, 83-ish. Um, we had 3D graphics and those were produced. How were they produced? In the end, they were rendered on things like these tectronics devices. And did they have hidden surface removal? hidden surface removal is the big thing. That is, you draw a surface, and there are parts that in a real surface, a physical sort of solid surface, you can't see through. You can make a wire mesh, or you just make a meshed surface, and you're just drawing the grid lines, and that you can make rather easily, and that's uh, because you just need to know the coordinates of all those things. You need to do the perspective transformations and so on. But you can easily draw that. That's much more difficult when you want to do hidden surface elimination. The, uh, the, actually, I think we did have that in SMP. I think it was done using a Z-buffer technique where you basically say, let's draw out the, every piece of every line. Let's draw it at a particular XYZ pixel position. And you're just going back from the uh, frontwards from the back, just saying, which pixels can you see? When we built this for for Wolfram Language and Mathematica starting in 87, we wanted to do resolution independent hidden surface removal, hidden surface elimination. And that was much harder because we were using as our graphics description language, we were using PostScript, which is a resolution independent uh, language for defining graphics saying, you know, put this polygon here, put this line here and so on. And we wanted to do that for uh, for 3D graphics and, uh, that, was, um, uh, th- that was much more challenging and required a much more algorithmic approach of figuring out, oh, this polygon that goes here obscures this part of that polygon here. And you know, when you have polygons in front of each other, they will often shatter the polygons behind them. You have to break them up into lots of pieces, and that was algorithmically quite tricky. Let's see, there's a question here from Word Nerd about the history of Wikipedia. How did it come to exist? I certainly don't know all the details of that. Um, I know, I remember going to an event. Oh, gosh, when was this? This must have been 2002, 2003, at which somebody was showing off. Was It was at, an, at, at MIT, and somebody was showing off sort of the Wikipedia thing, and it was something where they had a little thing that chirped, every time an edit was made to the um, to the system. And it was chirping quite re- quite rarely, actually. And the person who was showing me this was uh, proudly showing that there was a page about me on, on Wikipedia and um, asked me whether it was correct. And I think it was more or less correct with a few errors. And that person then went and edited the things that were wrong and, and there was a, a chirp and, and off it went. Um, I think uh, the subsequent history well, I, I know from having talked to Jimmy Wales a long time ago, um, who was the, uh, um, uh, the sort of the, the the person, the force behind Wikipedia. Um, the uh, I know that our MathWorld website um, was one of the kind of inspirations for kind of the general uh, sort of presentation of Wikipedia. And I'm afraid, well, then people sucked content out of MathWorld and put it on Wikipedia. Um, Eric Weistein, who's the person who originally created Math World, um, I had been persuading, trying to persuade him for a long time to accept sort of other people's contributions. And it was a challenge because Eric is a, um, uh, is a person with high standards and most other people's contributions didn't quite meet his standards. So that was sort of a, a challenge is how do you make this kind of group um, activity uh, work and maintain standards and so on? I know Jimmy Wales originally had a project called Newpedia, which was an attempt to sort of make a um, uh, um, make an encyclopedia for the web. Let me let me go back to a little bit about other things that I that I know. So you know, the whole world of encyclopedias um, had been started by people like D'Alembert in the 1700s in um, in Paris, um, and uh, uh, then Encyclopedia Britannica was founded in Edinburgh. When was that? Sometime in the 1700s. And Encyclopedia Britannica had kind of defined uh, in the English language, at least this notion of what is an encyclopedia. And people had, uh, um, you know, it had gradually grown. I mean, I certainly have a facsimile copy of the the first edition, which is a small, you know, maybe three inch spine, four inch spine book um, that was kind of almost like an expanded dictionary um, of of concepts and um, and people and and uh, and so on and that was kind of the defining uh, version of what an encyclopedia should be. And the Encyclopedia Britannica gradually grew. I have a copy, for example, of the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica, which is so uh, I don't know, uh, well, a, a solid shelf of books. The 1911 one was particularly famous because it's one where the editors of of the encyclopedia um, got. Uh, Lots of people like Einstein and so on to write articles about things, and it was very celebrity-written encyclopedia. Um, and it really it had a, um, uh, a sort of a, um, uh, a had a, quite a lot of long articles about um, about things. I think maybe Einstein wrote the one about light, perhaps. Um, but in any case, the um, th- there was some, uh, sort of Encyclopaedia Britannica developed as a, a as a business. It developed in a certain way, and um, it ran into all kinds of problems. I think it, it was sold for a dollar um, at least twice in its existence. Um, it, it somehow came into the orbit of the University of Chicago, um, and uh, uh, which I think owned it for a while. Um, and uh, through that, uh, it came into the influence of a person called Mortimer Adler, who was a philosopher at University of Chicago, who was a person who had some theories about Um, uh, about the theory of knowledge and so on. And so he uh, was quite um, influential in kind of the, the, I think he even became the editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And he eventually decided to sort of refactor how the Encyclopedia worked into what he called the Macropedia and the Micropedia. The Micropedia was kind of almost dictionary style, you know, quick hits on different topics. And the Macropedia was sort of more essay-based uh, kind of pieces. And I think he had a thing called the Propedia, which was kind of a, a an ontological, a, a kind of a map of all knowledge. Um, I remember looking at that, um, that document, actually, oh gosh, this takes me back. Um, when I was working on SMP around 1980, um, I kind of had the idea of making kind of this uh, kind of computational knowledge type system of having at that time sort of packages that would represent different kinds of uh, human knowledge, and so on, and um, uh, represent those things computationally. And I remember um, getting out a copy of that Propedia uh, kind of part of the Encyclopedia Britannica as a kind of an attempt to have a map of human knowledge, um, to kind of say what would be the categories of thing that we would need to implement. At that time, it didn't get implemented, I had to wait for another, oh, what was it, uh, 30 years or so. Um, uh, for the development of kind of Wolf malfer and our whole sort of computational language story. Um, but that was, uh, there was a time that Encyclopedia Britannica had this sort of map of knowledge and had these kind of different levels that Mortimer Adler had defined for the encyclopedia. But um, meanwhile, Encyclopedia Britannica as a, as a kind of a, 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 as a business was kind of a, a funny thing because it had been sold to schools and universities and things like that. Um, but uh, it also was sold to individuals and families and so on and it had a very uh, uh direct sales kind of approach it had actual salespeople who would go out and try and you know sell you an encyclopedia and and, and sometimes it was sort of an interesting type of person who would become an encyclopedia salesman um because uh, it was kind of a you know you're selling knowledge in a sense it's rather a rather a nice thing actually um i remember oh years later Oh, this is a, a, a strange footnote to history, but um, there was a a a a, a, um, a very Californian kind of movement called Est um, that was started by a chap who went by the name of Werner Erhard. Um, it was, I think, Est something or rather training um, was the was the the thing. It was kind of a a self improvement kind of um, uh, well. Some people would call it self improvement. Some people would call it a cult. Um, there was sort of disagreement about that. But anyway, this chap Werner Erhard. Um, took it upon himself this must have been 1979 1980 to start organizing conferences about theoretical physics um and i happened to be invited to one of these when i was um uh, quite young and um uh the um as a smallish group of physicists um and another person who was there was was dick feynman um and somehow uh the the assembled group of physicists that kind of Uh, chosen Dick Feynman and myself to be the people who would, you know, be be the ones talking to Werner Earhart at this uh, fancy dinner that was um, that was uh, being had at this conference. And sort of the at the time, of course, the Web didn't exist. Wikipedia didn't exist. You know, knowing the history of Werner Earhart was not an easy thing to to determine. Um, And so I spent some uh, early part of the dinner determining that. and, And I was very interested to find out that he'd been an encyclopedia salesman And in fact, his kind of way of approaching sort of explaining the world and so on was was very charmingly uh, kind of, um, you know, what you would do to explain fragments of knowledge um, to uh, uh, at at the time. I mean, you know, in, in today's world, it sounds kind of silly because people say, oh, you want some fragment of knowledge. Well, just go look it up on the Web. But back before the Web, you want some fragment of knowledge. Where would you find it? Well, you would find it in an encyclopedia. And, and that was a thing that people needed to be sold on, the idea that it was useful to have an encyclopedia. I have to say that I, when I first sort of was exposed to Encyclopedia Britannica, um, I, I looked up a few things that were relevant to uh, uh, to science that I was doing, and I wasn't very impressed. And so for years afterwards, I kind of ignored the encyclopedia. And um, only many years later, when I, when I uh, sort of, I, I think the particular areas I had looked up had been particularly uh, thin in the encyclopedia for whatever reason. But for for some time, this must have been, um, oh, late 80s, I just wanted to get myself a copy of the encyclopedia. And so I was like, I, I like, okay, you can, I got somebody to call and say, you know, can we buy one, you know, how much they cost? And it's like, no, 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 we'll send a salesperson around to tell you about it. It's like, no, we just want to buy it. And so, I was finally, I was at, um, this must have been in uh, 1993-ish. I was finally um, at a uh, a book fair, a street book fair in Chicago. And there was an Encyclopedia Britannica booth, by the way. uh, Encyclopedia Britannica was based in Chicago uh, then as as now. Um, And uh, uh, I thought, finally, there's a, a street booth where they are selling Encyclopedia Britannica. I can just buy one. And, you know, I lived in the Chicago area at that time, put it in a box, take it home, I'm done. No more, you know, let's send a salesperson out. And it was a huge challenge to actually buy the thing. It was like, look, I can write you a check. I can give you a credit card. I actually just want to buy it. How much does it cost? And uh, I think the answer was like maybe $1,500, something of that of that order. Um, but uh, I, I, the, the the salesperson uh just wouldn't sort of let me escape and actually buy the thing without going into this huge song and dance and speech and so on and so on and so on, which was uh, was kind of interesting, but but that was subsequently quite a business problem for the encyclopedia because that direct sales model, which had a very elaborate commission structure and so on, uh, didn't really survive the transition to, to electronic times. Uh, actually, a friend of mine was a consultant for Encyclopedia Britannica who really tried to convince them to make a sort of more open uh, web visible encyclopedia, but that didn't work out at the time. Meanwhile, there was another encyclopedia, uh, uh, which was, well, let's see, there were two other things. There was some um, uh, the effort to make a sort of online encyclopedia, a thing called Encarta, which was done by Bill Gates at Microsoft, And they bought, I think, the Funken Wagnalls Encyclopedia, if I remember correctly, um, and uh, tried to make kind of a a, a computerized version of that. And it was an interesting product. Um, Was a commercial failure. And it was a, you know, I think it was at the time, let's see, it must've had CD-ROMs, must've been right at the time when uh, there was a transition from distributing software on floppy disks to distributing software on CD-ROMs um, because you couldn't really have fit the um, the data for an encyclopedia onto floppy disks. That would have been an absurd number of floppy disks. I remember for Encarta, there were things like encoding the images. They were using a very elaborate fractal-based imaging coding scheme that um, I think uh, a chap called Michael Barnsley had been involved in, in developing Um, that was based on iterative function systems. And it's kind of a precursor of wavelet-based image compression, but done a different way. But because the goal in in Carter was just like, we've got to get some pictures in there, but we've got to get them as small as possible to fit on a CD-ROM so that they can actually be used. But that was sort of an early um, computerized encyclopedia, not a commercial success. Um, I think Jimmy Wales wanted to do sort of a commercial version of that you know, had web three and so on existed and, or had uh, Tim Berners-Lee decided that the web should have micropayments from the very beginning, the history of encyclopedias on the web might've been very different from from the way it actually turned out. The original kind of commercial version of uh, Jimmy Wales's vision did not work out. And um, there's a chap, oh my gosh, what's his first name? Sanger, I guess is his last name. And I certainly met him even fairly recently. Um, oh my gosh, don't remember his first name. Um, sorry. Uh, who um was kind of a more of a philosopher of knowledge type person who was involved in the early sort of conceptualization of Wikipedia. But um Wikipedia kind of became this kind of um crowdsourced thing. Um, I think uh it's um, a um uh Jimmy Wales certainly told me that he he felt he'd completely lost. Um, lost control of what was happening with it, and wasn't entirely happy with what was happening with it. I I do remember, this must have been 93, 94 timeframe, going to a conference in Boston called Wikimania, which was, I think, one of the very early, maybe the first uh, kind of, I don't know whether they still exist, um, Wikipedia conferences. And it was really quite interesting because a lot of people who'd been sort of editing Wikipedia showed up at this conference, and they'd never met each other. And it was a very curious collection of people because it was a lot of people who were very diverse collection of people in terms of their kind of uh, occupational backgrounds and so on from, you know, some professor types to uh, a lot of sysadmini type people, some librarians, uh, some people who were uh, kind of like, well, I could, I you know, I just started editing Wikipedia and it was, it was fun. And uh, it's like they didn't have, you know, they were basically, you know, going from Encyclopedia Britannica and reference books and so on, and entering some of that material in, into Wikipedia, and and using Math World actually, which by that time existed as a as a website, um, and uh, uh, and and you know transferring its material into Wikipedia. I don't know. In in modern times, uh, I'm I'm um, I think most people. Probably, uh, you know, when I when I look at Wikipedia pages about people, I figure the person who the page is about wrote this page because, uh, uh, in most cases, I I have to say I've I've avoided reading my own Wikipedia page. Um, I, I think I'm not as necessary to uh, to produce such a page about because I've written an awful lot of stuff about um, uh, and said an awful lot of stuff about my own history. And uh, if the world wants to have. A decent version of a page about me. There's a ton of material to use to uh, to make that, and um, somehow I, I think I have been. Uh, uh, it's been part of my approach to things to uh, uh, to not read stuff other people write about me because I feel it's a, It's not a useful. It's kind of like a uh, you know a video feedback system or something. It's not one of these things where y- you end up getting. Um, uh, it ends up not being a not being a useful loop. I have to say I. I I, um, I think some of the things, for example, for the NKS book, um, should be on Wikipedia. I don't know if they actually are, but, but um, it's something where uh, for people to take chunks of stuff from the NKS book, where, where I have pretty good summaries of lots of kinds of um, uh, lots of kinds of ideas, particularly in the notes and so on. Um, I do notice with great regularity that the things that are in Wikipedia are distinctly worse than the things that you could get by just Lifting a paragraph and quoting it from the from the NKS book, um, and uh, but I don't know the, the the processes for getting that to happen. Maybe maybe folks who uh, who listen to these live streams could uh, could do the world a service and um, uh, and and uh, make use of those kinds of things. And I think um, at, at some point in the past uh, we set it up so that a bunch of pictures that we make a usable in wikipedia in terms of their licenses and so on and I, I guess that that got some of them to be used although i don't i don't know how many i think that this process of having kind of a a crowdsourced place um uh, you know wikipedia has been very successful in many ways um i think sometimes when you dig into details it kind of falls apart but um uh the um overall i think it's been a tremendously successful thing it's always interesting to me to see which of these kinds of uh crowdsourced things are doable and which are not i mean one general one general rule is if it's been done before then it can be done again perhaps better by kind of a a crowdsourced approach um you know encyclopedia britannica already existed so you could make a kind of online version of that or an amplification of that, because there was sort of a pattern for how to do it. I mean, Encyclopedia Britannica as an organization, um, we've interacted with them uh, repeatedly over the years. Um, It's kind of a a sad story because they had had quite a large curation effort of people uh, sort um, uh, sort of maintaining, a few hundred people maintaining the encyclopedia and they, they had a lot of issues because they were printing an Encyclopedia and they were, you know, printing a new edition every year and so on. And so there were a lot of issues about, well, wait a minute, if we change that page, it will have a ripple effect that will affect all these subsequent pages. So when we make a change about this thing, we have to make sure that it keeps the same space or doesn't ripple through too many pages. Otherwise we have to re, re redo you know, a thousand pages or something in that volume of the encyclopedia. So they had a lot of issues like that. They had also tried to set up an internal database of uh, kind of knowledge, which um, at, at various times we we uh, interacted with them about using, but I think in the end, it's pretty tiny compared to what we had to build for Wolf Alpha, for example. Um, and I think it, it um, uh, but it was sort of an interesting example, I think probably based on Mortimer Adler's kind of ideas, about um, uh, sort of uh, uh, constructs that um, uh, the way of, of of breaking down knowledge into pieces. I think notions of singulars, things of which there's one of it, versus collective things, and so on. Um, things like this, and and um, uh, sort of relationships between uh, between uh, uh, objects, and so on. And I I, I don't think we ever actually. Uh, I don't think I ever actually saw. the the real sort of uh, pure um, kind of representation of of what Encyclopedia Britannica had. Um, But they had a very state-of-the-art kind of operation going with very good curation, um, which unfortunately was just not uh, not commercially viable um, after sort of the web. uh, And uh, the the transition to the web really just didn't work very well. Um, And then Wikipedia came along, and and that effort uh, kind of of, uh, died off. Um, I think it's, um, uh, it's, it's interesting, as I say, what is accessible to sort of this crowd approach. I mean, for example, one thing we certainly notice is Wikipedia is a great source of kind of folk information, like what are the typical names by which something is known? That's an important thing for us for natural language understanding for Wolfram Alpha. When it comes to sort of raw systematic data that you can compute from, that's a quite different story because you know the, the, the crowd, so to speak, will tend to put in a thing, maybe they'll come from one source originally and somebody would just copy a bunch of stuff from that source, copyright be damned or whatever, but um, uh, the, um, into Wikipedia, but then they'll gradually, people will say, no, 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 that, that value, I've got a better version of that. And so gradually what was something quite systematic um, will become something um, that uh, is, is no longer systematically computable from. Um, and so that's uh, uh, that, that, that's sort of a different objective um, that, that one can have. Now, I think um, it, it's interesting to see these different kinds of projects that work and don't work. Uh, you know, another one started by a friend of mine named Steve Coast is OpenStreetMap, which was a very successful project uh, that was, uh, Steve Coast actually had been an intern at our company back when he was in uh, high school, I guess, um, and um, had then, uh, uh, at some point, gotten very frustrated. He was, was based in England. He gotten very frustrated about the Ordnance Survey, um, uh, and um, uh, the Ordnance Survey was the is the government mapping uh, organization that puts out maps in the UK. And um, they were like, no, 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 these maps are very proprietary, and you can't um, uh, can't sort of openly make use of them on the web and elsewhere. And um, Steve decided he was just going to launch a kind of a crowdsource project to just map the world. And a tremendously successful project, uh, certainly helped by the fact that GPSs came in and people could start just driving routes and uploading things from GPSs and and annotating maps and so on. And uh, it's been, uh, I think it, it also helps that in a geographic setting, there are, you know, somebody can decide I really want to see the maps be right for Costa Rica and you know I'm going to make you know really put an effort into um uh, uh into making that happen and become the sort of person in charge of of that that kind of mapping I, I know in that particular case I I ran into the person who was in that particular role who had been I think working for the postal service in Costa Rica where they had tremendous trouble from from streets badly named and misnamed and renamed and so on, and had just decided, you know, use the OpenStreetMap framework and just get the thing straightened out. And uh, you know, I don't, I don't, can't speak to the precise quality of what was done there, but but um, that was sort of a, a general um, uh, kind of uh, impression of of what was what was going on. But that's a place where you know maps had existed, obviously, um, but this was a place where one could take sort of the crowd and um uh and in that case kind of um uh organize it in some cases rather regionally to produce a high quality uh, sort of street map of the world um i think um uh this whole question of sort of what happens to these communities and particularly the originators of these communities um how are they uh you know at what point do they sort of lose control of the of the collective creature that they've produced. And the answer is, I think, fairly early. Um, The the versions of this that are successful, that usually happens. And it's actually a very, if you were to say, you know, is it a good career move to start one of these things if you want to feel satisfied in the end? Well, it's good if you are satisfied by the fact that the thing you launched becomes a big thing in the world. It's very unsatisfying if you care about the thing you launched uh, operating ways in ways that you thought it should operate or that the people who are operating it kind of um uh think more of you than just the, it's the sort of originating guru so to speak it's one of these things where um yeah, people say well it's it's uh uh' it's, it's a sort of cautionary tale in terms of crowdsourcing kinds of things um but that's uh that's what i know about that i think um Let's see. Uh, Ah, somebody's reminding me it's Larry Sanger. Apologies, Larry. Um, I I know um, uh, Larry has been interested in some uh, blockchain related encyclopedia projects, and we've uh, interacted about those kinds of things. Um, I think, uh, um, you know, I, I will say, by the way, that there is a lot of opportunity for other. Uh, ways of communicating knowledge and and sort of encyclopedic knowledge. One of the things I've long wanted to do is to take our sort of computational essay uh, kind of format and produce a kind of uh, um, an exposition project, just expositions about all kinds of things in a mixture of human language and computational language, so that one is not only just reading the narrative, but also able to actually compute from Uh, uh, from the things that that are written on the page. And and I've done that to a certain extent. And and certainly one of the things I've taken as a principal for the last few years in writing things about science and so on is that every picture in every piece that I write, you should be able to click on it and get the Wolfram language code that you can run anywhere to to compute with. Uh, You know, I have to say that I, I feel like what we've got in Wolfram language uh, and our sort of effort to make a computational language that can describe everything computationally. I think it is finally a good way of making raw material for sort of representing knowledge computationally. And I feel pretty good about the fact that I can pick up kind of pieces of open language code from 35 years ago and run them today. That's a, that's a good sign that um, we didn't make um, compromises that are kind of going to you know over that span of time, we've dealt with a lot of change in kind of the world of computing, um, and yet uh, the, the the that um, the the kind of the principles there and the actual code still runs, and I think we can expect that to continue um, into the into the sort of infinite future because it's one of these cases where what we defined, what I defined, was a language which was defined for its own sake, not a language which was defined for the purpose of fitting into the particulars of the computer hardware of 1987 or something. Um, and so that's something which like mathematics, like uh, sort of formal kinds of systems is something which is time is timeless. And so you can expect, can be preserved and, and can keep running into the future. We haven't ever had that before. We've had in the 1600s, people talked about sort of philosophical languages as a way to represent knowledge independent of human languages. That was a thing Leibniz, John Wilkins, people like that wrote about this. Um, but they didn't have the, the material, they didn't have computers, they didn't have the, the internet, the web, you know, ways to communicate knowledge, things like this, which we have today. And finally, I think we have, um, well, after the 40 years I put into it, we have kind of a, a language for representing knowledge computationally. Um, and I think there's a sort of a great opportunity to build sort of the next level of encyclopedia-like thing as something which is represented in computational language. It's very important that you actually have a computational language. It's not going to work if you're writing things with programming language because programming language doesn't have a representation of a city or even a graph or an image. Those are things not part of the programming language as such but they're things you need as the raw material to sort of talk about things computationally if you want to get far in talking about them. So I think we sort of have a unique opportunity now um, that uh, uh, to sort of build the next level of these kinds of things. And, and I've been sort of trying to kind of define how to get that started for a while. And, and um, uh, it's one of those projects which um, uh, is a uh, project one would, one would like to see done, but it's a challenge to do. I think you know we we started something like that with our demonstrations project back in the mid 2000s. Um, it's been quite successful now. I don't know 13,000 or so of these runnable uh, demonstrations, uh, you know, in, in in notebooks and on the web um, of all kinds of things. Demonstrations are more for their sort of visual effect and run the slider and see this see this um, uh, and understand how to uh, how some particular thing works more so than for the code inside them. Which basically, at this point, is is like if the code works and produces the the thing you want, that's great. But I think what's important about computational essays is the use of code, the use of computational language as an actual piece of exposition. Just like mathematical formulas can be used as a as a sort of piece of exposition, that's an opportunity to do that, and that's sort of a new possibility that that uh, exists today. Um, that. Uh, uh, it's sort of different from the kind of thing you find in the traditional encyclopedia to Wikipedia type thing, which is more of a narrative where you, uh, you know, which is intended for people to just read, um, as opposed to something where you can expect to build on it um, explicitly rather than just have it go into your brain and, and then uh, uh, you learn from it. All right, I, I should uh, wrap up um Soon here, some comments. Some, um, uh was commenting that HP 9800s were awesome. Um, uh, okay, that they had overlapping video memories. One was ASCII character based. The other was HP plotter language control. Wow. I I think that the um, the pen plotter output desktop calculator thingy that I used was a nine something or other HP device, but it didn't have that same, it didn't have a... a um, the only display it had was, um, oh my gosh, what are those? Um, it was beyond, uh, there were seven segment displays which are made from light emitting diodes from an array of of sort of uh, light emitting diodes in the shape of, of an eight. Um, but then there were fancier versions of that that could display uh, sort of um, lots of characters um, as these kind of uh, miniature bitmap displays, just sort of uh, a ticker tape one character at a time. Um, and I think that's the kind of uh, thing that, that that had, along with probably a thermal printer that printed a little strip of paper. Actually, that's a good question. Would I still have programs? I must still have programs that I wrote on that machine. I I, I did a bunch of physics calculations on that machine, um, and. Uh, Uh, I was kind of using, at the time, I was using um, that machine and a mainframe computer that was programmed with with, um, cards. And I'm trying to remember whether there was any way of getting um, uh, graphical output from the mainframe at that time. Not sure that there was. Soon thereafter, there was a company called Printronics that made dot matrix printers. And a dot matrix printer has... um, this so a, a line printer, which was kind of the the typical output device of a mainframe computer, was something which had this kind of um, belt that went around that had all of these sort of um, uh, um, um, kind of um, little things like uh, font ca- like printing font characters. They had little 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 um, uh, uh, like like typewriter keys, but on this belt, and it would go around. And it would, it would um, how did that actually work? It would print a line at a time using that. And I'm now forgetting quite how that worked. Um, but sort of the next technology was the dot matrix printer where there were, um, um, uh, which was a, an array of dots that would be printed across the page. And with those uh, where the characters were formed from collections of dots, and in those, um, those allowed uh, some sort of primitive graphics to be produced. I, I, I remember there used to be, even in early Unixes, there was a program that was kind of part of the operating system, I think, that provided some basic graphical output on things like Printronics printers. Back in those days, it was sort of a big deal that you had to have a separate driver for every different kind of printer and so on because they all accepted their data in different ways on on serial interfaces, on parallel interfaces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's only later that all these standards for representing these things got established. I mean, you know, it's kind of remarkable to me today that in VR, for example, virtual reality, it it is bizarre that, to my knowledge, there isn't really a standard that's emerged for how do you represent all this 3D imagery? I mean, there are things like Unity and Unreal and so on, which are essentially game engines that people use, but it's kind of crazy to be representing what is really just 3D imagery um, using a whole game engine sort of code-based system. But for some reason, uh, and, and this is, reminds one greatly of sort of the early days of, of printable graphics, that um, that there weren't those kinds of standards. Um, I think uh, the, uh, well, laser printers became a thing. I first got a laser printer It's made by a company called Imogen, I remember. Um, I must have gotten that laser printer in 1984. Um, And it was a great big object that um, was probably fairly expensive. Um, And uh, uh, yeah, no, let's see. I used, that's right. And there there had been previous things, the same kind of technology um, that were used, for example, to print uh, the kinds of things that you were going to use to photographically make the masks for for integrated circuits. And um, I think there was a what was a company Versatech, I think, that made printers that printed those things out on very very wide paper. I was just reminded of this just yesterday as I was digging through the history of the NKS book, because um, uh, I remember back in 1984 or so printing out a giant picture of rule 30, uh, 2,000 generations of rule 30, which at the time, I mean, no, no, I think it was that, um, on this giant roll of paper uh, printed on one of these printers that was intended for printing out uh, what would turn into masks for an integrated circuit. Um, and, uh, uh, well, perhaps the circuit board, but I think for integrated circuits, in any case, the, um, it was a high-resolution printout on some kind of photographic paper. Um, actually, those early laser printers always did that, and they they had. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how, but there was it was not on sort of ordinary ordinary paper. Um, but in any case, that that um, uh, that printout um, had the interesting sort of um, uh, uh, history. Uh, it was, you know, high-resolution printout of Rule 30. So I got to see, you know, what does Rule 30 do? My sort of cellular automaton that produces complicated behavior from a very simple rule. And um, I remember having that printout on the floor at this company, Thinking Machines Corporation, that that um, made parallel computers and was actually used to generate the bits that were sent to the printer to um, to produce this picture. And uh, Dick Feynman and I were both consultants to that company. And Dick Feynman was very interested in this Rule 30 uh, phenomenon. And um, uh, he had this argument for why a particular line in this image would be exactly slope one quarter. And so we were kind of um, going around on the floor with these meter rules trying to measure this thing on this picture. And In fact, it turns out it's not exactly 0.25 slope. It's like 0.2481 or something like that. Um, But in any case, uh, and um, uh, so... That particular piece of paper, or at least a copy of it, uh, made uh, I think probably that particular one, um, I laminated years ago, and I still have it. And it's this big roll of of um, you know big big roll of stuff, and it it rolls up very nicely. And I was just remembering that um, my children, when they were quite young, um, uh, it's it's this big rolled up thing, and so you can go inside it, and uh, you know it's it's as it's as Tall as a uh, oh, probably up to a three-year-old or something, or a little bit more, um, and uh, it was uh, a source of great entertainment uh, to to sort of go inside this giant rolled object, object um, and uh, uh, um, uh, and so that so it found a this rule thirty uh, printout found a good home. I was just reminded of this yesterday because I was um, uh, was was writing about the way that graphics were produced the NKS book, which was sort of a, a subsequent generation of these kinds of things. Um, all right, I think that uh, I need to wrap up here. It looks like it's time for my next responsibility, in my day job, which I think is also a live stream, looking at um, uh, having talked a bit about history here. Um, now I get to build a little bit of the future, um, put another few bricks into the cathedral we've been building these last uh, four decades or so. Um, And uh, I think if I remember correctly, it's a review about visualization. So it might be the little bit of the future of some of the questions that were asked here about computer graphics, I hope. So um, thanks for joining me and uh, see you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit StephenWolfram.com.